Welcome to Provence, France, where the sun scorches the summer hills and the cicadas chirp their song to summer. Hello, I'm Brett Dillon, and this is The Movie Chronicles. This episode, we explore the adaptation of Marcel Pagnol's memoirs about his summer holidays in Provence as the 19th century turned into the 20th. But before then, a little history of 1990. On July the 13th, the Loi Gassot was enacted in France. This prohibited Holocaust denial. Now, I know some of you think this is an attack on free speech. I hope that isn't so, but I have to act as if it's a fact. At issue here is, what is free speech? The belief that it is the freedom to say whatever you want without consequences is merely a right-wing talking point and neither exists in reality or in right-wing echo chambers. It is easily debunked by observing, if you say something that offends me and I knock your teeth out, then who is to say I wasn't exercising my freedom of speech in doing so? Laws exist to limit that particular freedom of speech, and right-wing pundits are all for law and order when it suits them, and therefore they have to admit there are limits to freedom of speech. The question then becomes, where do we, as a society, place these limits? I would argue your, or my, freedom of speech ends when I expect others to suffer some harmful to them consequence from my speech, and or my speech implies that consequence should be applied to them, or vice versa. Please note how global this concept is. Free speech must be defined as either the expression of a fact or the reasonable inference obtained from the majority of evidence. As an example, the Holocaust is a fact. The majority of evidence supports it, and case law defines it. The world is a sphere is a fact. All vaccines work to some degree is a fact. The efficacy of some vaccines can be debated, not whether or not vaccines work. Civil society and civil discourse depend on consensus on the facts, which can be determined by the consensus of experts in the field. No one person can know everything about everything, or even everything about one field of knowledge. This is just hubris. A person who attempts to speak as an expert on a topic in which they have no acknowledged expertise is as ignorant and worthy of your time as a person who claims they have no expertise in this area. The best way to explain this issue is by analogy. A doctor of medicine is not a rocket scientist. Anything they have to say about jet propulsion is as valid as anything anyone has to say on the subject who is not an expert on jet propulsion. If, in the extremely unlikely case that they do have something valid to say, you shouldn't waste your time on this information until jet propulsion scientists 
have investigated the claim. If they are not sharing their insight with jet propulsion experts, it is a red flag that their anus and mouth are interchangeable and even more reason not to waste your time on what they have to say. A person of this ilk should be treated as someone who is willfully ignorant. They have done the research, found they don't like what the evidence suggests, and have made the conscious choice to ignore this. I'm fine with this, unless they try to sway other people to their way of ignoring reality. To let this slide is to slowly lose social cohesion over time. On December the 1st, the Channel Tunnel workers from France and the UK met for the first time 40 metres under the English Channel. Thoughts of digging a channel were popular at the turn of the last century, but far from the mind of the young Marcel Pagnol in Le Gloire de Montpierre, My Father's Glory. Director and script, Yves Robert. Script, Louis Nucera and Jérôme Tonnier. Director of Photography, Robert Alzaraki, Christophe Balkan, Eric Vallée and Paco Visa. Editor, Pierre Gillette, Music, Vladimir Cosma, and actors, Jean-Pierre Darras, Julien Kemaka, Victorian Dalamar, Philippe Cobert, Nathalie Roussel, Didier Pan, Therese Liatard, Benjamin Dietrich, Paul Crachet, and Joris Molinas. My Father's Glory is a film about the morally murky world of adulthood, beautifully shot and full of life, food, and fun. The film was adapted from the autobiography of Marcel Pagnon. The narrative is made up of a shaggy dog story, for as much as there is a narrative rather than a collation of anecdotes. It is turn of the last century France, and Marcel's parents are taking him and his brother on a holiday into the hills. Once there, they have many adventures. Marcel discovers the human, vainglorious side of his father, and he develops an affection for this concept of his schoolmaster Pater. The film is stunningly photographed, acted, and scripted. It has been edited with a leisurely pace that brings out the nuances of the story. I was surprised to discover Yves Robert didn't choose the locations for the film. He was stuck in hospital during pre-production and let director Claude Pinatau choose the locations. Author, playwright, director, humorist and novelist Marcel Pagnol was born on February 28, 1895 in Alban, France and he died in 1974. It was in 1904 that the Pagnol family rented the Bastide Neuve in the village of La Trille-Provence. Marcel's mother died in 1910, and his father remarried in 1912. In 1913, Marcel passed his baccalaureate in philosophy and then attended the University of Aix-en-Provence, in 1914, war broke out like a rash. Marcel was conscripted and then discharged in January 1915 as unfit for duty. In March 1916, he married. 
By the end of the year, he had graduated with a degree in English. Très bon! He became an English teacher. In 1922, Marcel and his family moved to Paris. While he continued to teach until 1927, he also began to write. His first success was a play written in collaboration with Paul Niveau and produced in 1924. Marcel felt life in Paris was exile from his beloved Provence. This sense of nostalgia became the play Marius, which became his first film adaptation in 1931. The film came about when Marcel, visiting London, England, saw an early talking picture and realised cinema was a format which he could use to increase his audience base exponentially. Marius became the first internationally successful French-language film. On the other hand, Marcel left the direction to Alexander Corder, and while not actively disliking the result, he decided he could do better. Marcel became famous for his careful casting of actors with the right accents for his films, and his highlighting French regional variations of culture. Tragedy struck in 1951, when his daughter Estelle died at the age of two. Marcel retreated into himself and produced four memoirs of his early life. The sequence has the collective title Souvenir d'Enfran. In 1961, he published the L'Aude de Colline series and turned the first book, Jean de Florette, into a film. Marcel is buried near his childhood friend David Magnon, Lily de Ballon, in My Father's Glory. Marcel once observed, One has to look out for engineers. They begin with sewing machines and end up with the atomic bomb. Director Yves Robert was born on June the 19th, 1920, in Samour, France, and he died in 2002. From the age of 12, Yves worked as a topographer and then studied mime. He moved to Paris to study acting and made his film debut in 1948. His acting wasn't bringing in enough to support him. Fortunately, producers realised he was a dab hand at writing comedy. This writing carried him through the 50s. In 1962, he branched out to add director to his CV. War of the Buttons was a hit. Good thing, because it was an early film from Le Gouvy, the production company Yves and his wife established in 1961. Le Gouvy also worked as a distribution agency, and in this capacity, it introduced the films of Monty Python and Terry Gilliam to a French audience. As a tribute to his first film as director, visitors to a cemetery plot leave a button. Births were not bursting out this year. We have only on December the 22nd, Jean-Baptiste Monnier, French actor and singer. The sequel to My Father's Glory was filmed and released in the same year. Le Chateau de la Mer, My Mother's Castle. Director and script, Yves Robert. Script, Jerome Tonnerre. Director of photography, Robert Alazraki. Editor, Pierre Gillette. Music, Vladimir Cosma. Actors, Jean-Pierre Darras, Julian Chiamaca, Victorian Delamere, Philippe Cobert, Natal Rossel, Didier Pan, Therese Leotard, Paul Crachet, 
Joris Molinas, Julia Timmerman and Jean Rochefort. The film is narratively broken into three parts. In the first part, Julian gets his wish to return to the hills of Provence. There he meets Isabel, who claims her father is the editor of a leading newspaper and who is also a poet. This relationship seriously strains his friendship with Lily, who spies on him with Paul. Eventually, Julian discovers Isabel's father is a drunken proofreader. She must leave the countryside, and they never meet again. In the second part, Julian is chosen to represent his school in the scholarship exams. His father, Joseph, has a raise in pay and position, and decides to rent a house in Provence for the weekends. Mother, Augustine, agrees to this. The only problem is the long walk from the city. This is solved by a former pupil of Joseph's. He looks after the canal which runs through several properties that form a shortcut. He loans Joseph the lock key that will gain access through the properties. None of the owners mind except an empty house guarded by a lame man with an old dog called Masher. The dog, not the man. They hide whenever they go through the place, and Augustine's fear grows with each trip. Eventually they are caught, which causes the canal keeper to turn the tables. The third part is set in the thirties. Augustine died when Julian was seventeen. Lily died in World War I. Paul became a shepherd in the Provence Hills and died at the age of 50, presumably two to three years before this story begins. Julian has become a film producer and gets his accountant to buy a house in Provence suitable for a film studio. When he finally sees the house, he realises it is the house Augustine was so afraid of. Her fears were foundless, as her son now owns the house. It's a delightful little tale, not as complete as the first film, nor truly a sequel, more an epilogue. Filmed in the same beautiful golden light as My Father's Glory, it is a marvellous, beautiful, moving film on its own, and a perfect complement to its predecessor. Composer Vladimir Cosma was born on April 13, 1914, in Bucharest, Romania. Vladimir has a close association with the work of Marcel Pagnol, even to the length of writing the opera Marius and Fanny, first produced in 2007. His family were all associated with music. Vladimir studied at the Bucharest Conservatoire of Music and then left for France to study at the Conservatoire National Supérieur de Musique de Paris in 1963, but not for free. By 1964, he had decided he really wanted to compose music. It was Yves Robert who commissioned him for his first film score, 1968's Very Happy Alexander. There was no stopping him after that. He was very popular with directors because he could write in a variety of different styles. Folk music, classical to jazz, and everything in between. Deaths in 1990 include, on January the 10th, Juliette Berto, the French actor who was born in 1947. February the 5th, Pierre-Marie Benoit, the Frenchman who helped smuggle Jews from Nazi-occupied France. 
He was born in 1895. February the 15th, Michel Drac, the French producer, director and scriptwriter, born in 1907. March the 17th, Capucine, the French actor, born 1928. March the 20th, Maurice Cloche, the French director, producer and scriptwriter, born in 1907. Next episode, I'll barely have to leave my front door to encounter buried treasure, failed dreams and a murder or two. Yes, I'll be in New Zealand in 2010. Don't forget to check out all the Movie Chronicles ebooks from an e-store near you, batteries not included, and become a Patreon supporter, because it's the right thing to do. But then, what do I know about rights? Until next time, kia kaha.